we are in Matthew chapter 25, which is the end of a sermon that Jesus gave on the Sermon on the Mount. Not the Sermon on the Mount. Got cross there. The Mount of Olives, different mountain altogether. Outside of Jerusalem, there, the middle of the week of Jesus' week of passion, Jesus, the Olivet Discourse, is answering a question posed by the disciples within the context of a statement, a prophecy, that Jesus uh, uttered at the end of chapter 23. At the end of chapter 23, Jesus is looking out at the temple. He leaves the temple. He looks out, and he says, this place is going to be destroyed. It's going to be so destroyed, the destruction will be so complete that not one stone will even be left upon another. And we know the fulfillment of that prophecy took place in 70 A.D. when Titus sacked Jerusalem. Within that context, as they're exiting the temple, as they're going down the Kidron, as they're making their way up the Mount of Olives, on their way to Bethany, which is where Jesus is staying during this week, they sit and they're looking out over the city, and the disciples come, and, and they want more, more context. They want Jesus to speak about when these things will take place, and the sign of the end of the age, and they want to know about his coming, when he's going to establish the kingdom. Now, Jesus says a lot of things in chapter 24. The highlight is that Jesus answers their question by pointing to an Old Testament prophecy. He said, you guys want to know when I'm coming, when these things will be fulfilled. You need to look for a particular event that Daniel the prophet spoke extensively about. It's known as the abomination of desolation or an abominable deed that yields a desolation. This would take place, according to the prophet Daniel, when a, the Antichrist, or the son of perdition, the man of lawlessness, when a, a world figure enters the temple, and he, he erects an altar to himself in the Holy of Holies. He declares himself to be God. An abominable deed. Not just blasphemy, abomination. And it yields to a desolation of the temple, and it should open the eyes to the people, the Jewish people in particular. Jesus says, if you want to know when these things are going to be happening, you look for this event. And when this happens, hey, if you're in Judea, you flee, you run. If you're out in the fields, don't return home. Persecution will follow. Tribulation will follow. And this will ultimately culminate in the second coming of Jesus Christ. So they want to know when these things will happen. And Jesus says, I'm not, I'm not going to tell you exactly when, but I'm going to give you a pretty good idea. When you see this happen, well, then you know, and you should be prepared. And then in the sermon, as he's continuing uh, this explanation, he's laying out the details. In verses 36 down through 44, again of Matthew 24, Jesus seems to switch topics to a degree by speaking to the church. As any good preacher, Jesus is answering their question. He's laying out some theology. But he leaves the church with hope that you won't be there for these things. And he, and he concludes it with the exhortation. Let's look. Verse 44. He says, therefore you be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. And that is the proof text that you need to understand that Jesus is not giving an exhortation to tribulational saints. He's not giving an exhortation, a continuation of an exhortation to the Jews that are fleeing Jerusalem at the abomination of desolation. Because Daniel chapter 9 and chapter 12 
remove the mystery as to the timing of these things. Daniel is very particular. When you see the abomination of desolation, you can set a clock. And you know, three and a half years, 42 months, he lays out the particular days, Jesus will return in glory. So when Jesus says, therefore, be ready for you, do not know when the Son of Man is coming, you know, at an hour you don't expect, it can't be the second coming that Jesus is referring to, which leads us to our understanding that Jesus in these verses has been speaking to another event, and it's my, my belief and position that it's the rapture of the church. To be ready, to be expectant. We don't know when that event will happen. Paul writes about it in 1 Thessalonians. For a trumpet of God will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise first, and those who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord in the air. The rapture of the church is not the second coming of Jesus. It is the calling of Jesus, of his bride, home in heaven before judgment gets poured out on earth. The dead rise first, those who are alive are caught up, raptured, is the word in the Greek that we derive. That's the expectation of the church. We're not longing for the second coming of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, no. Take me to you is what the expectation and the desire of our heart. And within the idea of the rapture, across the, the gamut within Scripture, is this reoccurring notion of imminency. That we're always to be ready. That we're to be looking and watchful, expectant. That there's no world event, there's, there's nothing that needs to happen to bring about the rapture. The rapture can happen at any moment, at any time. So we should always be ready. We should be ready today. We should be ready tomorrow. We should live with an expectation. The saints in the first century were to live with that expectation. Those in the 1500s were to live with that expectation. And we today are to live with the expectation that Jesus could call us home at any moment. Hey, you might have a lot planned this week. And the fact is, is a lot of what you have planned this week is probably important. There are some things I would assume you're looking forward to. I'm equally sure there's probably components of this coming week you're not looking forward to. And I'm not saying you shouldn't be prepared and you shouldn't think and you shouldn't plan, but realize that your week could radically change later today. For all of those things, whatever fears or cares or worries, whatever was on the horizon, that your eternity could begin today. How amazing. Now, within the context of this exhortation to be ready, to be ready, to be watchful, to be expectant, Jesus then at the end of chapter 24 lays out a very simple parable. We're going to reread it. We're not going to comment too much because we went over it a few weeks ago. But Jesus said, verse 45, who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all of his goods. And so the, the good servant, and the context of being ready, we're to be a good servant. Now that's in contrast, but, verse 48, if that evil servant says in his heart, my master is delaying his coming. So he's not ready. 
and begins to beat his fellow servants and to eat and drink with the drunkards, the master of that servant will come on a day he is not looking for, at an hour he is not aware of, and will cut him in two and appoint him his portion with the hypocrites. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So within the context of being ready, we see that Jesus is saying, a good servant is ready. And an evil servant isn't. He's not expecting. That's a very simple, very elementary parable illustration that Jesus is making. And then continuing, again, there's no chapter or verse breaks. This is a sermon, a continuous thought that Jesus is presenting. He begins to provide some examples of what characteristics exist within a good servant, or in contrast, an evil servant. Now, I want to present an idea up front that is, I wouldn't say very controversial, but, but maybe minorly controversial. There is an idea within Christianity um, related to the rapture known as a partial rapture, that Jesus will only rapture part of the church, and he won't rapture all of the saints. And so you can look around the room and say, the trumpet will blast, and I just hope I'm, I'm one of those going. And some might get left behind. Now, I don't believe that that is scriptural. I don't believe that such a notion is biblical. I do understand how that conclusion can be reached through the parables we'll be looking at this morning. Because there's some really radical implications of what Jesus is, is saying. I think the easier understanding of what Jesus will be articulating within the idea of the rapture of the church is the notion that not everybody that claims to be a Christian is a Christian. Not everyone that claims to be a servant or even functionally is acting as a servant is indeed a genuine servant. Jesus said that there would be some that say, Lord, Lord, I did works in your name. And Jesus said, depart, I never knew you. So we understand this even when you're looking at uh, the letters that Jesus writes to the church in Revelations chapter 2 and 3. Those seven letters addressing not just time periods within church history, but movements within church history four of which still exist presently today, there is a continual exhortation to several of the more wicked churches, hey, I might let you into tribulation. Like, you need to get your act together because tribulation is coming. The implication being if you don't, you could enter tribulation. And then it's the faithful church, the church of Philadelphia, that Jesus writes to with, with the wonderful news of being removed before tribulation. So we understand that there's an idea that there are people that claim to be Christians that are not Christians. And I think that that's an interesting idea. Play it out for a moment. Let's say the rapture happens tomorrow. The faithful church, you and I, <laughs> We will be caught up to be with Jesus, right? But what percentage of those who claim to be Christian will be raptured? What percentage of Christians today are really Christians? Now, again, that's controversial. People say, how dare you judge people? Uh, well, you haven't been reading your Bible because we're exhorted to judge all kinds of things specifically fruit. And the truth of the matter is you look at the, the, the pervasive doctrinal beliefs of quote-unquote Christians. I would be hard-pressed to say that you can be a Christian if you don't believe in the bodily resurre resurrection of Jesus. 
Like there are essential doctrines related to salvation that a majority of Christians don't hold to be real. So if you play it out, it's interesting idea that the rapture happens. There is a percentage of Christians that go to meet Jesus in the air. And there's a majority of Christians that are still here. I think a lot of their eyes will be opened. But you can quickly understand how this might not be such a cut and dry thing. Well, there's church leaders and mega pastors that are still here. This had to be aliens. This couldn't have been the rapture because I would have been raptured. And I think that idea, the notion that a good servant and an evil servant is kind of a broad way of Jesus addressing true believers and fake ones. And that idea, I think, removes the concept of partial rapture and makes the next two parables have a little clarity. So let's dive into them. Again, Jesus continuing right along. He says, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the, the bridegroom. Now, the better translation of virgins is these are the bridemaids. It's not the bride. These are the bridemaids. And this was customary uh, in, in regards to the way that a Jewish wedding would, would function. There would be a betrothal, an arrangement. The two parties are legally married. The bride would be at home preparing herself. The groom would go and prepare a home. And the groom would prepare a home. There would be no official date. The bride always had to be ready, expectant. The groom would be preparing a home. And he couldn't say when the preparations were complete. In fact, the father of the groom is the one that would have to say, son, the digs are good, you pass inspection, now you can go and you can retrieve your bride. Sound familiar, the beautiful imagery of it all? Jesus says no one knows. Jesus doesn't even know when the rapture will take place. That is only known by the Father in heaven, who at some point in the future will turn to Jesus and say, go get her. And the bride will be prepared. Now, they're bridesmaids. And the way that would work in a Jewish wedding is that the word would come that the groom is coming. So the bridesmaids would rush out of the house, they would go, and they would join the celebration uh, as all the community comes out, and they're coming to get the bride. So there's this whole festive thing, virgin better understood to be bridesmaids. They took their lamps, they went out to meet the bridegroom. Now five of them were wise, and five were foolish. Better translation of foolish, if you get into the Greek, is stupid. They were stupid. Those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with the lamps. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they were slumbering and they slept. And at midnight a cry was heard, Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. Then the virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, No, lest there should be enough for us and you, but, but go rather, sell, buy for yourselves. When they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, the celebration. The door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came and said, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Therefore, watch, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. Now, uh, 
we have to keep the parable in context to the notion of the evil and, and the good servants. So Jesus is giving us characteristics. Watch and be ready. And what is the singular characteristic of, again, the context being a good servant versus an evil servant? And that is not just preparedness, but note the possession of something important. Oil. See, what made one group wise and another group foolish? Note the characteristics are that they were all watching, they were all ready, they were all expectant, they were all sleeping and then awoke, and none of that's bad. The main characteristic, the main difference between the two, what made one wise and made one foolish, wasn't anything that they did. Note, it wasn't any action or activity. It was something that they possessed, that they possessed. They had a lamp and they had oil. They had fuel in which the, the flame could burn brightly. And oil throughout Scripture is always a picture, it's always an image, simply put, of the Holy Spirit. And so as we examine ourselves, I want to be a good servant. Again, the distinction being what makes you good from foolish or, 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 or wise from foolish, good from evil, it's the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is saying if you really want to know the, a distinction between these two groups, it's, it's what do they possess and it's this Holy Spirit. And we see, again, within the exhortations that Jesus gives of certain churches, their deadness, their lack of spirit, their lack of divine influence, the lack of the movement. What makes us alive, my friends, is the Holy Spirit within us. What gives us the strength to act godly, to be Christ-like? It's not your ability or your energies or your effort or your acumen. It's the Holy Spirit. Paul says, I died so that Christ might live in me and through me. And how does that functionally happen? Through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. There is nothing that you can do in this life of Christ apart from the Holy Spirit. Everything good that comes from your life comes from the Holy Spirit working through you. Everything bad is you. And man, it's so obvious when it's you, isn't it? Yesterday, if I could confess... Quincy was playing baseball, and this umpire, I'm the first base coach, this umpire was the worst umpire in the history of umpiring. And I did the Christ-like thing. I let him know that. <laughs> Sean can attest. In between innings, I had to check with my son. Son, would it embarrass you if daddy got thrown out of this baseball game? Because that is where the tides are going. He took a moment and looked and said, I'd be proud of you, dad. <laughs> I said, that's my boy. Now, I kept my mouth shut the rest of the game. But it was very clear that it was not the Holy Spirit working through me in the life of that umpire. It was a lot of Zach cranky, irritable Zach. Isn't it obvious when it's you? And then isn't it obvious when it's the Holy Spirit? And you're like, I can't believe I acted that way. That was so counter to anything I would normally do. I was actually good. I said some nice things. I was encouraging. Yeah, wouldn't you? It's the Holy Spirit. So again, you can study this parable. I listened to one pastor 
who went through this whole thing that the bridesmaids, that this is not to the church, that this was instead to the Jews, that the Jews are the bridesmaids because the Christ is the bride, and this is not to Christians, and this is about some of the Jews and the tribulation. And, and it was like, I'm, I'm listening to the study, I'm like, this is the most nonsensical thing possible because a parable is to be simple. It's to articulate a simple idea. And Jesus is saying, hey, there are good servants and there are evil servants. And let me tell you a distinction. One's got the oil and one doesn't. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. For the kingdom of heaven, verse 14, is like a man traveling to a far country, who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his ability, and immediately he went on a journey. Now let's set the stage. You have the king. He's going to be traveling, and he takes three servants, and he gives to them talent. I love the English translation of this, because it can be talent. It's actually money, and it's about 20 years worth of wage. Now note, he gives to them according to his ability. One he gave five, another two, another one. So he gives, he's the giver. So he's bestowing the talents. They don't earn it. They don't deserve it. The king evaluates and he gives accordingly. Okay. And he goes on a journey. Verse 16. Then he who had five talents went and traded with them and made another Five talents, doubled the money. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also, doubled the money. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. So money's given. Five doubles it, two doubles it, one digs a hole and buries it. Now, after a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. So when he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you delivered to be five. Look, I gained five more besides them. His Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You are faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also who had received two talents came and said, Lord, you delivered to be two talents. Look, I gained two more. So his Lord said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things, I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Now, now note, the guy with five doubles it to five. That's a bigger increase than the guy with two that doubles it to two. But they're both treated the same. They're both rewarded the same. They're both uh, given kudos in the same concept. It wasn't how much they were given to what was returned. It was that they were faithful. That's the idea here. Wasn't the amount and then the returned amount? It was were you faithful with what you were given? I gave you talent. What did you do with it? That's the idea. And these two men take what they have, again, different. They're faithful with it, it yields. They're rewarded. Well done, good and faithful servant. They're both rewarded the exact same. Note, there's not a distinction. Then, verse 24, he who had received one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping 
where you have not sown, and gathering where you have not scattered seed. And I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. But his Lord answered and said to him, you wicked and lazy servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown. Note, he doesn't requote the hard man part. He says, you did know I reap where I have not sown. I gather where I have not gathered seed. So, you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers. Man, when Jesus is telling you to go to the bankers, we've gotten low. And at my coming, I would have received back at least my own with interest. Therefore, take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. What an interesting, what an interesting parable. Again, within this context of the good servant and the evil servant, yes, one characteristic is having oil and not, reliance on the Holy Spirit or self. But then when you're looking at the second parable, you find that the, the next characteristic is not the amount of talent that one is given. It's being faithful with the amount of talent one has been given. It's faithfulness. And we find two men that were faithful with what they had been given, and we find one who wasn't. He was lazy and wicked. His approach was fear. He didn't want to lose it, but he didn't use it. It was waste. To the point that the, the king is like, you could have just put it in the bank. If you were so afraid, it would have been safe and I would have gotten a return. But you didn't even do that. And I think within the application for us this morning, again, of being recognized by Jesus, our king who is coming and which we're to be ready for, is that we're to be faithful with what God has given us. And I love, again, the our word talent, because it is, it is broad in its application. Could Jesus be talking about our money? Absolutely. Do you realize that, that everything you've been given has been given? Everything you has is a gift. God on high gives accordingly. And your job when it comes to your finances is to be a stewardship. In fact, everything in life is stewardship. It's the essence of it. Sovereign God and total control, everything I have is a gift. And it's my job to steward it. You know, people often make the wrong calculation. They get their paycheck, they fill their wallet with cash. The question is, well, how much of my money am I going to give back to God? Wrong. Don't give anything. You completely missed it. It's not how much of my money do I give back to God. It's how much of his money do I keep. See, that's the acknowledgement. That's the whole point of tithing. It's like, Lord, I'm just letting you, I'm acknowledging in my own heart of hearts that everything I have is yours. So I'm just letting go of it. It's all yours. But beyond just monetary, time, you know, it's interesting, people have time. Some not as much as others. What do you do with your time? Yeah, I think one of the great travesties of the, the, of the modern church, especially a modern church filled with younger people, is the dismissal of older retirees. I think it's a total shame. Why? 
Because they got a lot of time. <laughs> I mean, they've worked hard their whole life, and, and they got time. And they want to serve, and they want to be put to use. If you have time, what are you doing with it? Now, I'm not saying you can't go play golf. I play golf. But are you, are you spending your days on the golf course? I had a friend years ago, years ago. He made millions and millions of dollars in metalworking and tucker. He turned 70, he retired, he sold the company to his employees. Man had more money than he'd ever, ever need. His kids had more money than they would ever need. But his son, who was a missionary in Japan, told his dad, hey, don't waste the last few years you have on stupid things. Don't be stupid. God has given you time and experience and resources and money. Do something with it. So he read an article in the paper about a release time Bible organization that was bringing the gospel to public high school students up in Ella J. And he drove up there and he met with the man that was doing it and he came down and he started a whole program in Gwinnett County. Bringing the gospel to kids. And he bankrolled all of it. He says, I can't take it with me. And I mean, he spent tons of time. Now did he go on vacations with his wife? Sure. Did they have fun? Absolutely. But he didn't waste his time. He had time. God had given him according time. And he was like, when Jesus, if Jesus comes, I want to make sure I'm using my time to his glory. But what about actual talent? That's why I love the English. Talent. Some of you have a lot of talent. Say you're the guy with five. You got five talents. Truth be told, there are some of you with only one. That's me, by the way. And it's not how much talent God has given us. It's what are we doing with that talent. If you believe that God has equipped me and given me a unique personality, unique characteristics, unique insights, unique experiences through life, if God has given me all of these things, what am I doing with my talent to further Christ's kingdom? Now, I'm not saying that we all quit our jobs and just use our talent and be broke. Hey, God has given you a talent to provide for your family, to support your church, to support missionaries. Like th there's a functional value to that. But a lot of you have talent that God can use for his kingdom. She's going to be embarrassed because I'm going to point her out. But when I went down, one of the one of the, the one of the things that I did when the aspects of my job is that I took care of the finances of the church. I'm the only employee, so I took care of all the finances. I paid all the bills. I ran payroll. You know, I, I paid the taxes. I, I took care of all the finances. And when I went down, no one was there to do it. So Carrie, who went to school in finance, likes numbers. I mean, what kind of a person likes numbers? And, like, gets really giddy about Excel. Shoot me in the head, you know? Crunching numbers and running databases and spreadsheets. Not my talent. And yet Carrie jumped in the fray and took her talent and started serving Jesus by serving her church. And then when I got healthy and I could get back to some things, Carrie came to me and says, you know, it's really, it's really rewarding to be able to, to use my talent to serve Jesus. And so she still does the finances. Like, what's your talent? 
And how are you using that talent to serve Jesus? Are you? Are you even thinking about that? Again, a distinction, a quality of a faithful servant and a wicked servant. One who's really ready is faithfulness with what they've been given. Are you being faithful with what you've been given? We have time. Let's try to finish the chapter. So there's these two parables that illustrate for us the faithful and evil servant. Jesus in verse 31 pivots now, not a parable. Verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory. Now note, Jesus is immediately referencing, and this is very important, an actual event. When the Son of Man comes in his glory. So Jesus is, is, is saying, and he's referring to his second coming. Please keep that in mind. So right from the bat, Jesus is saying, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, from heaven to earth, and all the holy angels with him, angels can be translated as messengers. So in addition to being actual angels, I think that includes you and I. With him, he'll sit on his throne of his glory. And all the nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a sheep, as a shepherd divides his sheep from goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer him. And say to them, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, so the, the goats, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick, and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick in prison, did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Very interesting section of scripture. There are Bible scholars uh, who believe that Jesus is describing what is known as the Great White Throne Judgment, which is recorded in Revelation chapter 20. And the Great White Throne Judgment is the final judgment that occurs at the end of a thousand-year reign of Christ, at the end of a tribulational period, at the end of the reign, at the end of time, before we enter in, into eternity. That the Great White Throne Judgment is the ultimate judgment of the wicked, where they receive their final everlasting punishment. The problem with seeing this passage as a reference to the great white throne judgment is that it doesn't work. Note what the 
what the criteria is for judgment or reward. It's works. Which would create a lot of complications because that's not about the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment is about one thing and one thing alone. The decision you made about Jesus. It's not about works. And then with that concept in mind that it's the great white throne, then we extrapolate out and this gets very confusing because, you know, social justice warriors of the gospel will point and say, well, we need to be doing all of these things because if you do it to the least of one of these, you're doing it as unto Jesus, and that this is the basis of our salvation, works. But no, that doesn't seem to fit at all. Instead, this judgment of the sheep and the goats predicated upon what? How you treat one of the least of his brethren. That's, the con- that's what Jesus says. Who is his brethren? Well, his brethren, there's, I guess, really three applications, three answers to the question. One's not relevant whatsoever, but that's his actual biological brothers. Jesus had a couple stepbrothers. His brethren, we understand in, in Hebrews that Christians, that Jesus refers to us as his brethren. But practically, Jesus also speaks to the Jewish people literally as being his brethren. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the prerequisite to be the king of Israel is that you had to be of the brethren. And and it uses that language. Jesus referring back to it, the least of his brethren. When you study the book of Revelation and you study eschatology or end times, when you look at the seven years we call the Great Tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel 9's prophecy, We understand that up front, the church is removed. So who's left? Well, there will be ultimately two groups of people left, we know. There will be those that align themselves with the Antichrist. They take upon themselves the mark of the beast. And they've sold their soul as a result. They are damned at the moment that they make that decision. They've aligned themselves with the Antichrist. And no doubt that there is a large majority of the world's population that will make such a decision. The Antichrist, anti not being against Jesus, but a replacement Jesus, comes on the scene and develops a following because he's promising salvation. He's going to fix the world's problems. If only people will follow him, he will be the political, uh, economic, spiritual leader of the world. And people will make a decision to follow and to give him power. The majority, why? Well, because we're told in the book of Revelation that there's consequences for not taking the mark of the beast. Specifically, you're ostracized and alienated from society. You're not allowed to buy, sell, have a bank account. You're renegades. You're cut off from from the, the, the town square. We know that there's another group of people in the tribulational period, and, and that is the Jews. Specifically, the 144,000 that are described as being marked, sealed, set aside, followers of Jesus to evangelize. It's been said and they've been described as being like 144,000 Billy Graham sent to the nation of Israel to proclaim Jesus as king. There will be two additional witnesses doing the same. So you will have Jewish people that end up rejecting the Antichrist, specifically after the abomination of desolation that become followers of Jesus. 
Now, a lot of them will die. Zechariah the prophet describes that two-thirds of them will likely die. But there will be a remnant of them that will be preserved, that will survive. So those are the main two categories of people. There is a third. And that is Gentiles, non-Jews, that upon seeing the rapture of the church and biblical prophecy unfolding in front of their eyes, will reach the conclusion, man, I made a terrible mistake. And and I missed it, but I know it's coming. And they will give their lives to Jesus. We will call we we call them tribulational saints. These are Christians that won't take the mark of the beast. That are also being persecuted, beheaded, ostracized. That will live during this time period. Most of them will die. But when the Son of Man comes in His glory. When Jesus comes back, Jesus will deal with the remnant of the earth's population at that point. And the determination, goats and sheep, is about who enters the kingdom and who is set aside for damnation. And we know up front that part of the goats will absolutely be anyone that's taken the mark of the beast. That's easy. And we know the goats on the other side are absolutely the Jewish people who have accepted Jesus. And it seems to be implied within the passage that any Christian, any Gentile that treats the Jews well and that ministers to the Jews, that that rejects what's happened, Christians will also be the God. So this separation occurs at the end of the tribulational period, not the great white throne judgment. This is about who enters. In fact, Daniel in chapter 12, Daniel 12, Daniel, you know, lays out abomination of desolation, Well, he sets up the time frame seven years. Three and a half year mark, he says the abomination of desolation. From that point forward, we have another three and a half years. So seven years in total, Jesus returns. But then Daniel in chapter 12 goes one step further, and he lays out another 45 days before the kingdom's established. For what? It seems to be this very event. That Jesus sends the angels to the four corners of the world, and he gathers everyone to the valley, the Kidron Valley. The Valley of Jehoshaphat, right outside of Jerusalem. And he sifts the goats and the sheep. And the goats go to damnation. And the sheep are allowed to enter, and it'll take 45 days. And then there'll be the celebration. This is what the whole tabernacle, uh, uh, the Feast of Tabernacles is about. It's prophetic to this event. Where they would be living out in booths and tents awaiting to enter into the kingdom, the establishment of the kingdom, and then Jesus restoring the earth. Now, where some scholars get split is a hypothetical another category. Is it possible for someone to live through all of this, to be kind to the Jews that recognize, hey, this is wrong, they, they reject the Antichrist, they don't take the mark of the beast, they're renegades, they're on the run, They're probably Southerners. They got their guns and their plot of land and their compound. We had seven years of food we got from some radio guy. And these Jews that were on the run, we took them in. They're not Christian. They don't accept Jesus, but they reject the anti. Is Is there possibly another category of people? That could potentially fit within our understanding of the goats. Because Jesus 
the prerequisite here is not salvation. It's kindness to his brethren, right? Is it possible for someone to survive all of this? Not accept Jesus in spite of everything that's happened and Jesus coming back. Maybe. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, I would not encourage you to be the one to find out. Some Bible teachers will say absolutely not. No one that isn't a Christian will go into the tribulational period. If you take this parable at face value, you could say there is a possibility of that. I'll let you decide on your own. David Guzik, by the way, absolutely does think that people can. I know that because I texted him and said, are you serious? And he said yes. And everybody else I listened to disagreed with him. I'll let you chew on that one because I have no idea. I, I, I gravitate to saying no, that there's no way. But at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, what happens? You have a whole generation of people living with Jesus as their king that do what? Reject him and rebel. The human heart is stubborn, isn't it? The application. Again, we go back to this: the faithful servant, the evil servant, the application towards the evil servant. They'll be cut in two and appointed his portion with the hypocrites. They'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We find the repeating of weeping and gnashing of teeth in verse 30. We find everlasting fire in verse 46. And this seems to all be in reference of servants. And name only. Are you a Christian playing a part with the hypocrites? You wear the name tag, Christ follower, but there's no spirit in your life. There's no faithfulness being demonstrated. Are you a poser? Are you a Christian because your parents were? Because your great-grandparents were? Why are you a Christian? If you claim to be one. I think there's a stark and, and radical warning that Jesus is giving here at the end of his Olivet Discourse. You need to be watchful and you need to be ready but you need to be the real deal. And that only happens when you bow the knee to Jesus. And you accept him as king. And you ask to be filled with his Holy Spirit. And then you live expectant and ready. You put life in its context. And when the king comes, you just want to be found faithful. Again, it's not a reward to results. It's a, resort, a, a, a reward to faithfulness. You had a little, but you were faithful with it. I don't know about you, but whether I die and awaken before the throne of Jesus, or I get called home and I hear that trumpet and I find myself before the throne of Jesus, I want to be found faithful. And I hope you do too. So Father, Lord, we just...